Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Zaneda Robles to the show. Dr. Robles is an award-winning American composer, vocalist, and teacher. Born, raised, and educated in Southern California, she received her doctorate in musical arts from the USC Thornton School of Music. She is the director of music at Neighborhood Unitarian Universalist Church in Pasadena, California, which is where I was introduced to her many talents. She also currently serves as a performing arts instructor at Harvard Westlake Upper School in Studio City, California. She boasts an extensive national and international resume as a concert soprano soloist, a studio vocalist for film and television, and as a professional ensemble singer. Her own original works are performed regularly in different venues throughout the world and are available for streaming on her website, ZenataRobles.com. As a philanthropist and activist, she is a fierce advocate for diversity and inclusion in music education and performance, regularly donating her time and talents to community organizations that further these goals. It is an honor to have her here with me today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Robles. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a joy. I have been tiptoeing my way into being a member at Neighborhood Unitarian Universalist Church, and you're a big part of it. You create such a wonderful environment there. Thank you. And you're so... Um, no two shows are the same, you know? Yeah. It, well, you know, the, doing church is is a lot. You know, I used to sing at All Saints Church uh, in Pasadena as a section leader and soloist. And so I learned a lot about producing church. <laughs> and so um, producing church has to do with really wanting to tell people's stories, you know, with the, with a spiritual aspect to it. And, and so that's kind of what guides our programming. You know, what we want to make sure that we're lifting up as many voices in the community as possible. And being in, at a Unitarian church is a major part of why we are able to tell such diverse stories and to, to dig deeply into heritages from, from various um, religious traditions, because Unitarians uh, touch on so many different spiritual paths and, and embrace so many different spiritual truths, no matter what spiritual tradition um, you come from. So that's why there is such a diversity of music and, and topics and, um, you know, styles that we're able to to produce there in a way that's meaningful um, for for all those who will participate. Well, it's been a very welcoming place for me, and it's been very eye-opening to discover the Unitarian Universalist world and how it's built into the structure of it to celebrate alongside all of these traditions. And mm -hmm. it's a special experience. And and thank you for bringing it to life in the way that you do. And you're, you know, you're you're very talented. It's it's you're an extraordinary singer. It's very clear. I'm like, oh yeah, this is what happens when you're in L.A. You know, is that <laughs> you get to have people like Zaneda. So it's really, really lovely. And and I'm excited to get to talk to you a lot more about your journey. Some of which you just you know tipped your hat about. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So this is the one that really shakes people up. People often okay. walk away in tears after this question. What did you have for <laughs> breakfast this morning? <laughs> um, oh, that is a tough one. Okay, so it's really interesting. I've been experimenting with having 
like I, I went for a period of time where I wasn't eating breakfast because I wasn't hungry. And then I realized that was making me a ravenous beast by by lunch. So <laughs> now I, I'm eating a small something for breakfast. But this morning I messed up because I don't know, I just was off my game. So when I got to school, I, I got to school extra early today and the offerings weren't that great. So I ended up having uh, dumplings with some kind of so Asian sauce, but then I paired that with a uh, puff pastry meat popover, and it was not great. Oh, I was <laughs> like, just gonna say was, this sounds amazing. I, I mean, no, dumplings well, I, and yeah. Well, I mean, like it's kind of like normally I would just have like an I was I should have had just an like a boiled egg or you know just like you know some orange juice or something it's just very simple but this morning it was like oh i caught you on a great day <laughs> i caught you on a weird one let me just pop the most you know greasy fried <laughs> yeah, crap in my right. mouth so this is like, greasy fried crap for oh yeah That's, right it's like this is like i'm catching yeah. you know i should have been recording you last night when you were uh, out at the <laughs> bars until two in the morning <laughs> You know, and you're, you oh, woke honey, up today, I and you're. Wish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, right? Oh yeah. man, those days are gone for me too. Um, yeah, Zaneda, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Uh, at a very young age, my maternal grandmother was very devout um, member of a uh, Black Baptist church. I don't know if I disclose yet. I, I am. I do identify as Black or African American. It's a massive part of my identity, and so that kind of co- colors the way that I kind of walk through the world and experience things in life. And so, um, at a very young age, I recall, you know, Sundays were for church, and we went to church with Granny, and Granny went to Black church, and that's where you discovered um, about being born again. And, um, wow, you know, yeah. like many things, I'm, I'm talking about like age five, you know, whatever, you know, four or five, six years old. I'm very young at this point, but, you know, church is just, it seemed very normal to, to talk about things like being born again and Jesus coming again and Jesus as your personal savior. When you really think about it or you think about it in the context of the Unitarian church, it's like things that make people go, ah, wait, what, you know, like what? Person was your Lord, Lord of who? Who's like you know? Yes, but these were just yes. very. It was everyday life, you know. That that that's how you describe God, you know. And and so, but I would say, I think I had my maybe when I turned five years old. I I remember on my fifth birthday. It's a really strange memory. I thought turning five was a major milestone. I remember this like five <laughs> was was a major milestone in my life, and I remember being around granny's house. I feel like maybe it was a Sunday or something. I don't know. I remember being, we were, we were at my granny's house and um, I was walking, you know, skipping down, down the way. It was my birthday and, you know, it was a great day. And I remember looking up into the sky and it was just blue and there were these puffy clouds and it was sunny. And I just remember, I think, I, I think I had my first spiritual experience. It was like, you are now five. Wow. And I am God and I am with you. I, I, that's, it's a very, I don't know if I've ever said, told anybody that, but I remember on my fifth birthday, I felt like God shined down on me and said, you're now five and welcome, you know, like I, so, and it's interesting wow. too, because I don't, I, I feel like all of my childhood memories kind of start from there. Like, I don't remember anything specifically before I turned five. It was like, I turned five. I had this moment of, revelation. I'm now five and I'm connected to 
the world all of a sudden and and this energy and now my life begins and now and then I remember everything from five forward. That's extraordinary. Do you have siblings? Yes, I do. I have a younger brother that I grew up with. He was about two and a half years younger than I am. Okay, so it's not even that you were watching other people. I mean, you were watching your the adults in your life, but mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to access five years old and having that kind of experience. I think it's that's really lovely to be able to anchor that point. Yeah, I never thought about it. If I, you're the first person I've ever told that story to, so I oh. thought it was just kind of. I don't know, silly, I, I think, but, but I keep remembering it and it was real. So it must've been significant. Well, how deeply did you go into your Baptist roots? Uh, were you a deep, deep practitioner and believer in your youth up through mm. maybe your teen years? That's a great question. Um, so the answer to that is um, maybe, um, mm. to the extent that there was a period, there were sort of like different periods where, you know, my young kind of child, middle, middle childhood years, or maybe five through eight years old, where we were members at a very large Baptist church. Um, it was Greater Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church in LA, really significant, um, black Baptist church. We went there pretty regularly for like two years, and um, that was a part of our community. Like that, several family members were there, and a lot of, we had a lot of neighbors. And so, and I think the reason why that was so important at that time was just because of the community. You know, that was that was where social time took place. So the, the social aspect of church um, becomes kind of a part of the fabric of your experience, um, and I think that's why I was there. And I I remember also there was a there were a couple. During those years, I went to church church summer camp, and I think that that was an important um, benefit for my mom now looking back, because that meant for, you know, at least one week out of, you know, during the summer when, you know, the kids are at home, you know. It's just like hell on earth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know? right. laughs> it can be. So for that one week, you know, the kids are away at camp. And I remember there were a couple of years where we went to church camp. And I, I think that that was a benefit of membership um, at this church where you could get access to that. And so that was probably a great respite for my my mom, um, who was a single single mom raising these two kids. But that was being a part of that, you know, you get indoctrinated with, you know, all of the things and, you know, all of the holidays and you learn about Easter and you learn about, you know, the the sacrifice of the Lord. And, you know, you learn about being nailed on, nailed to the cross and uh, rising again on the third day and all the things, you know, you just, again, you learn the language, you, you get used to that language. And that's where that kind of developed. And I would say, we took some time away from the church after that as my family sort of moved around and um, I transitioned from elementary to my middle school years. And it was during my middle school years that I kind of found my way back to the Baptist, another Baptist church, again, my grandmother's church for about a year in middle school. I I really did go get pretty deep into it. You know, I joined the choir and I wanted to sing that style of music and the church provided me, you know, as a young musician, the church was very supportive and I was really inspired by some of the other, the, the song leaders, you know, the choir director and the song leaders and the musicians. I just loved to be immersed in um, the, the, the music of the church and I wanted to be a part of it. So am I right to say from what I'm hearing here that, you can look back at this special moment as a five-year-old and you can mm-hmm. kind of, clearly it's real to you. you. You're sort of cheeky about it, maybe a little bit now, you know, what does a five-year-old know? 
But yeah. you learn the language, you do the rituals, you you live the traditions, but you're it doesn't sound like those things were the things that really grabbed you. It, it sounds like the music is what grabbed you. And yeah. so when you were in the music, you were in the spirit. And But outside of that, is it fair to say you were always a, like maybe a little bit at arm's length from some of the actual beliefs, even though maybe when you were young, you didn't really know what that meant? I, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I think that I, I was not skeptical. It was more like it was a given. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to really think about it. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to think about it. I was, <laughs> to be honest, the, the beliefs, you know, needing to, you know, confess the faith, you know, confess the faith of Christ, because I believe in, uh, confess with your tongue and believe in your heart and, you know, whatever. I was like, okay, whatever. I do all that. Fine. But can I go sing now? Sure. <laughs> you know, sure, like, you sure. know what I mean? So I don't think I ever really gave it too, too deep of a thought. It just, that's what the language was. That's what we were told to do. If you say it, then they believe you and, you know, and that's fine. And I believe it too. How, why would I not believe it? I mean, you can't see everything that, you know, there is to see. And, and there are certain things that you can't say that we know are real. And, and, and I wasn't having any kind of a crisis of understanding of God. I was, I was, I think I did genuinely feel God's presence. Um, even from a young age. And so I didn't question the specifics. You know? yeah. So you, you slipped in that your mother was a single parent to you and your younger brother. So mm-hmm. I, I am compelled to ask, what do you know about your father? Did Was he in your life still in any mm-hmm. way? Or um, did you lose him at a young age? No, um, my parents just divorced when when I was, when we were, very little. So I didn't grow up with my dad at all. I think, I think my, my parents got divorced um, when my brother was one. So I was only about three or so. So it was really, that was real quick, <laughs> you know? Um, right. Yeah. Not a lot of memories. And so, yeah. And so um, I, I always knew of my dad as just this guy that I had to, you know, that I went to go visit every now and then and he was my dad. And um, <laughs> I didn't really perceive him as a parent. It was just, he was just kind of this the guy you call dad and he picks you up from your home and he takes you to his house and his house is kind of cool. And he's got the the most coolest music equipment. My dad was a um, gigging musician and um, oh. he, yeah, he, he, I guess was, you know, one of my earliest inspirations. Um, and he um, is essentially kind of started to have, try to have a career, um, as a as a gigging musician, and and ultimately he went into a different direction. Probably, you know, he, life as a traveling artist didn't mesh well with being a father and provider. So there's you know a constant things you can speculate about why things turn out the way they were. But ultimately, he ended up not um, doing music professionally, um, but still maintained a very active musical life kind of on the side and even um, produced a, a self-titled album. He was very, very active as, and very serious, kind of progressive rock musician, I guess. I was really heavily influenced by that, but only on like, you know, every other weekend or so when I would go visit him. Seeing my dad was kind of a side experience of life where I got to get, I got to get my musical fix and see all his cool equipment. And, you know, he might teach me a little song or something on the piano. I was always desperately trying to get my my dad to to teach me more music stuff. And, you know, it was just always such a short period of time, you know, and then moving on, got to get you, got to get you back home and got to get back on to 
kind of like real life, you know what I mean? So that was my experience of my dad kind of growing up is every now and then we would go over and do cool things with dad and then, you know, go back to the real world at the end of the weekend. I, I get the sense that is he, did he die at this stage or is he? No, nope, he's, he's still kicking. Oh, he's still kicking. <laughs> I, I had this sense of like, he was a gigging musician, so I wasn't sure. So No, he was a gigging musician turned like, um, he got into like computer programming, actually. He's still the guy that, you know, just every now and then kind of hang out, you know, and he'll, he has some cool thing going on. He has this, you know, a new car here. He's doing something, you know, with his girlfriend or going on some trip, you know, he just, he's just always kind of doing the cool things. And I, I get to kind of hear about it, you know, every now and then. Do you play music with him? Um, no, not really. No, we, uh, there was a period of time sort of like in middle school and, you know, I was getting more serious about my music. And so my dad, would occasionally accompany me when I had like a solo to sing at school or a competition I was doing. He would, he would help me make practice tapes or background tracks because he could play piano. And oh, that was wow. the extent it was, it was sort of minimal and it, not a lot, you know, but, but he, but maybe present just enough to have a significant influence on me. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zaneda, we are at the end of segment one. So let's say goodbye for now. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Cool. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Zaneda. You were telling me about where your spiritual journey is taking you, you're getting into music in your middle school and high school years. But I know from your bio that you're, you're getting into LA County School of the Arts very early. Mm -hmm. You're clearly driven. Please tell Mm -hmm. me about like how you discovered that at a young age and, and Mm -hmm. how do you find that direction? Yeah. So, you know, kind of after five years old, it's sort of like, I kind of like felt this purpose come over me. So I always really wanted to play piano. We couldn't really afford a piano, but you know, I I took other kinds of lessons. I spent some time playing accordion. I spent some time, you know, singing and, you know, eventually we got a piano. By the time I was about seven years old, I heard that you could be a doctor of music and I made it my goal. Yep. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to be. If you can be that, I'm going to be a doctor of music. So I knew I was a musician from a really early age. In middle school, I wasn't really doing that well. We had, we'd moved around Southern California quite a bit. And I, there was one particular move from my elementary school to my, to my middle school. That, that transition was really rough for me. And I was really not, besides doing music, I just wasn't really interested in school. I was always very, um, I was, I was, considered gifted. So I would do, I would place in, you know, the, the top classes and, and, but I wasn't really trying hard and I was just straight And by eighth grade. I was straight up, not just not doing any work. I was sleeping through class. Cause I was just like, I don't care. Mm. And then I found out, I learned that there was this school called the Los Angeles County high school for the arts. And my mom kind of heard about it from a friend of hers, um, at work. 
And I was like, really? I got so excited to think there was a place where I could just immerse myself in music. And I knew I just had to go there. I found out in eighth grade about the school. I had to wait a whole year to get in. And so mm. I started, I started, you know, just everything that I was doing was like, I, it's to get up out of this, this school in this area and to get to LOXA. That's what we call the school. LOXA was the name, the acronym. And once I got to LOXA, it was three of the best years of my childhood life, of my young life. Um, mm. My 10th grade year was amazing. It was everything I ever wanted to be. I, it really was like, you know, get the academics out of the way. And then after lunch, just sing, sing, sing. We sang, we sang jazz, we sang gospel, we sang classical. I had my first really important choral experiences. I started dating um, this guy <laughs> and when I was in 11th grade and he was a 10th grader. He asked me out to the winter formal. Hmm. That relationship developed a lot over the years. Um, I'm married to that guy now. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Nope. I'm, I'm dead serious. They, I met my husband at LOXA and I, I, that's how important going to that school was. Um, Whoa, and, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And we met in choir. He's a singer. We met in choir. Wow. And that was that was like the only class we had together. But he was a bear. he was in the bass section and I was in the soprano section. He would just make me laugh and laugh and laugh. And we were he would cut up and but it was just some this is the best times. He was probably the best baritone at school, of course, because I had to have the best part time. I mean, I can't um, imagine you'd settle for anything. Less. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, especially a, a, a younger class than you. I mean, very impressive. Oh yes, yes, he was. He was. I mean, quite you impressive. were the seniority on that one. It was a very, you know, torrid relationship. There was lots of ups and downs and breakups and drama and everything. It's everything a young romance should be. Oh had, yeah! So. Wow, gosh! I mean, it, it survived the ages, though. Holy moly! That's crazy. <laughs> crazy. It's wonderful, though. What a great story. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, what does this springboard you into? I mean, obviously, I know you end up at USC. Uh, what is? Oh, there's so much that happens before USC. Yeah, talk to me. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, when I finished at LOXA, I in my senior year, I, I started driving and I got into a, six weeks after getting my license, I got into a really bad car accident. Mm. No one was injured. I wasn't injured. But that's where I kind of that triggered a kind of a lifelong struggle with anxiety and depression. Mm. And so it that it affected my ability to apply for schools because I was certain that I was going to, you know, I, I thought I was going to be attending conservatory, like going to New York. I wanted, I was applying to Manhattan School of Music and Juilliard and Boston Conservatory. And, and I didn't even know what I was going to do. Jazz, composition, classical. I was, you know, I didn't have a lot of focus and the car accident sort of derailed my college application process. So I ended up at Citrus Community College um, in Glendora for a year um, after I graduated high school. A lot of people don't know the Citrus was a really incredible program. I had no idea. But the guy who used to run the Citrus program, Ben Bollinger, was a USC grad. And the USC choral program was top notch. Like it, So I got a flavor of USC by going to Citrus College. Mm. Um, and it was there that I was exposed for the first time to some to some of the really significant choral literature, you know, music of Bruckner, music of Brahms. And that was the beginning of a, of a really deep um, love affair of choral music. From there, I went to Cal State Long Beach and uh, on, a, on a full scholarship. Choral music was, I was always in the top choir. I was always in chamber singers. I was still kind of fumbling around, not figuring, not knowing what I wanted to do. And 
upon graduation, I sort of found myself in the same position I was in high school where I was supposed to go to grad school and do these summer programs and some reason I got derailed. So I spent an additional year at Long Beach in um, the opera program as an as an opera major. Now, looking back on this, I there's no way I was ever going to be an opera singer. I could sing classical music because I was I at this point had some training, but I wasn't an opera singer. So I was just kind of there filling space and still singing in the choir. I don't know if you if you know anything about opera majors in in grad school, uh, they don't sing in choir. <laughs> so <laughs> that should have told me something right away. But no, I was the only opera major singing in choir. I was the only opera major taking um, kind of a, con- a, a conducting masterclass seminar, just something on the side I you know, thought would be interesting, right? Finally, I went with my chambers, the chamber singers to a choral festival where I saw Cal State Northridge, Northridge singers, under direction of Paul Smith, perform their award-winning set that they went on to win the Choir of the World competition in Netherlands with later that year. So I wow. saw them practice this at this festival. And I had a spiritual moment of realization that I was not, I did not belong in opera. I needed to go do choral, I, I wanted to go do choral music and I wanted to study with Paul Smith, the guy who was running the artistic And so at that festival, I went up to Paul Smith in tears and I said, I'm at Cal State Long Beach right now and I don't belong there. I'm not an opera singer. I need to come study with you. Please, please, what can I do? How do I get into your program? That was kind of a major moment of stepping out on faith, knowing that I had to make this move. It was like a calling I had to follow. And so I did. And I never looked back. I never looked back. I've been doing choral music just a hundred percent. Like that's, that's been my life. And it's just been blessing after blessing ever since I made that decision. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, Zaneda. So you have this spiritual experience. Clearly music, it is an understatement to say that it is such an important part of your life and identity. And it's also clear that it's your go-to way of experiencing and touching spirit in your life. Yes, that's true. For sure. How do you identify that spirit. You, you're you raised Baptist. At what point do you embrace that more or leave it? And where do you go? I think when I got to, when I got into high school, when I got into LAXA, that not only meant a change of neighborhood in terms of school, like, you know, I was no, I was, I had a commute to, to get there. But my family also moved from Crenshaw, Ladera Heights, uh, or La Brea area where we were living, where we were was kind of a rough area, you you know, where the, um, when the LA riots hit, like we were right in the middle of that. Mm. So that area was, it was kind of right around that same time. And so we were looking for an, a way out and, and my getting into this school coincided with my mom moving us out to the San Gabriel Valley in Monrovia. Mm. And with that move came, you know, a separation from, the church, you know, separation from the neighborhood, you know, separation from any, you know, those friendships that I had kind of developed, you know, I didn't have very strong friendships at that time because I was really focusing. I was, I I had become very hyper-focused on music, but it sort of was like starting over. um, And my church experiences sort of got filed away that that's that sort of early um, spiritual experience sort of got filed away as a, as something I was taking with me, but I was not actively participating in. So no church for quite a while until I got to college and got my first church job. Thus began a long 
and beautiful uh, career as a church musician. And um, that's how I kind of found my way back into um, experiencing, you know, my spirituality through through music is with is through being a, a paid church musician. Do you? It's interesting to hear you talk about it because I feel like the subject matter doesn't matter to you. It, it's almost <laughs> like, eh, Jesus, God, you know, I guess I'm Christian, maybe not, I, whatever. It's just, if I get to sing, if I get to sing songs where I get to sing about either the spirit directly, God directly, or things that are of a spiritual nature, then you get to touch that spirit sort of it's it's honestly it's more about harmony and i think that um over the years i've sort of developed there's a there's a uh a line of spiritual thought around the divinity of music there's even a field called theomusicology which is kind of like the study of god and in music mm. and i think that it's not so much what you sing about or the dogma related to the to the text. It's the actual experience of making the music, of make of the sounds, you know, coming from your body or or you using your body to um, create music on an instrument, you know. Or for me, the I experienced, you know, I began to understand how I experienced the divine is in actually when my voice meets mingles and harmonizes with someone else's voice it's that's that's like the embodiment of god within us and the god singing through us and we see each other and feel each other the god in each other when we actually when we create music together and i sort of have really come to know that as a truth for me so so yeah it's it really does transcend the the lyrics and the dogma and the and the words and even the stories, you know, don't always, don't, are they're not always the first things I experience, you know, when I experience the spirit, spirituality and music, it's the harmony and the resonance and the energy coming from those with whom I'm making the music. Oh, that's beautiful. That's lovely. All right, we're gonna go out on the second segment on that. We'll be back in just a minute. All right, everybody, we're back in our final segment with Zaneda. And Zaneda, you were telling me that you're going through a really interesting self-discovery right now, and I'd love for you to just kind of open up about it. Yeah. So, surprise, we're, we've been in a pandemic, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and that's that's been really interesting. Um, from the time I, you know, was in college, I got my first church job, started, you know, my family with my high school sweetheart, right? And And it's also important to know that he and I were both employed at the same church. So we, we rate, we started our family at, in the Episcopal church. And, and that was a happy meeting of my Baptist roots and his Catholic roots. And you put baptism and Catholicism together and apparently you get Episcopalianism. So that's where, <laughs> that sounds nice. That's where we ended up. And so for a good 13 years, um, we sort of incubated there. And as a choral musician going through my graduate work and then, you know, I did a stint teaching high school choir um, at my alma mater, incidentally. This was where I really honed a lot of my understanding of how traditional Western European church music 
works and I learned all you know, a lot about the great composers and of you know, Western European music, particularly the the English or Anglican choral tradition, which is tradition that I became a part of. And so eventually, remember, when I was seven years old, I said I was going to be a doctor of music. It was time to make that happen, right? <laughs> so um, the work that we did in church, my husband and I, that was what what paid the bills and fed us and kept food on the table for our kids um, for, for like the first 12, 13 years of, wow. of our time. And also during when I started my doctorate at USC, I was still, I still had this church job that was, that was sustaining us. And so when I got out of USC, finally, I was ready to get that job, you know, be the director of choral studies somewhere. And I landed pretty much my dream job at Harvard Westlake School, where I teach the choirs, um, the high school choirs there, um, have four choirs. And you know, I'm pretty much feeling like I'm set. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm I'm a doctor of music. Pretty much my trajectory didn't change. And until, uh, oh, uh, by the way, one thing that I had experienced, you know, there, that's always kind of been in the back of my mind, you know, it, it's at USC, I was the first African-American woman to graduate with a doctorate in, in musical arts and choral music from, wow. from USC. Wow. And so, this becomes more interesting as, you know, I realize, especially going, you know, 2019 comes around, 2020 comes around. At this point, we've had a Trump presidency and we've had all the feelings from that. And I think that that sort of having that experience of where the political climate becomes a lot more volatile sort did um, affect my experience in my early career after graduating from USC. You start to reflect back and you start to wonder, well, you know, what would my time have been like if I didn't look the way I looked? And what would, did I really earn the degree or did I just get it because they needed a face? They needed mm. a, you know, I've been very focused my whole life. So it, it, I never let it really get to me or never really let it affect my movement forward. But you can't ignore the implications of your identity at some point is going to come back and um, you're going to have to deal with it. And mm -hmm. so once the pandemic hit, I think I, like many of us, had to really take a, a good hard look. You, you didn't have, have any choice but to take a good hard look in a mirror because <laughs> you were at home and yeah. you were, you know, the mirror is right there. And, and you start to think about who you are and what you're doing and what really matters. That's sort of where I feel like my career, my understanding of what I'm, what I do, um, as a, as a musician, as a mom, as a, as a, as a citizen artist really started to take shape for the better, I think. Um, and it's an ongoing journey that I'm, that I'm continuing to, to be on right now. Yeah. So tell me about it. What is, what's some of the clarity that strikes yeah. you? Well, so here's the thing. Um, when the pandemic hit, not just the pandemic, but also all of the unrest and the issues around social justice and Black Lives Matter and artists start to respond, you know, with with artwork and with projects and, and people want to talk to artists and you start to look at the field and you say, what's missing? You know, we want to, we, we need to write this ship. And so choral music, as you might, as a field is, is a pretty white male dominated field. Mm -hmm. um, and around this time, being a person of color and being a woman, it was like a twofer, you know, it was right. like, I became kind of, you know, there was this, this moment where suddenly it appeared that I had this new value because I was what was needed. And at first, it felt 
great. It felt really amazing to feel like finally I have an opportunity to be heard. There was a great new choral group, Tonality, um, which is this group that I was the the chair of the board of directors for until recently that really took off as like kind of the social justice diversity ensemble. And I got to premiere um, choral composition that I wrote. And and to this point, you know, I've been writing songs, you know, since I was a little kid and everything and doing little things. But ton- it was through this uh, organization, Tonality, that I got to premiere. I kind of came out as a composer, so to speak, you know, mm. and I found my voice. And so during this time, it's like my voice became really important all of a sudden. So I I was getting phone calls or interviews and I people wanted to do podcasts and people wanted to, I'm not going to lie, Nicholas, honestly, I was like, I, I think, I, am I supposed to talk about being black or am I supposed to talk about, I didn't remember what I was like because I've been doing so many different interviews mm. about being a black female composer conductor in my field. Like, you know, that, that's been the thing. And that takes a lot of self-reflection. So I've had to, I had to really understand my story in order to tell it. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, at first it was really great. And then it started not to feel so great because it felt like, like I said at the beginning, it felt like I was what was needed for, for something else. Mm. And so that's, you know, I started to really think about, well, what do, what do I need? What do, what do I need to say? What do I need to put out there? And that's where I really started to pay attention to, I need to own and be proud of my identity. Honestly, one thing I need to learn how to and consistently celebrate Kwanzaa. That's something that has come into my life as a a part of my tradition. And it's really helped because with that celebration, we've just just come out of the season, right? And um, the principles related to Kwanzaa are so, are are principles that carry throughout the year. And it's had a a lot to do with my composition because everything I write, there's a connection to the principles in Kwanzaa. And incidentally, my work as a Unitarian Universalist sort of pairs beautifully with the principles of Kwanzaa because it's it's actually not a coincidence that the seven principles of Kwanzaa parallel the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism. Mm. The originators of Kwanzaa holiday, there were some Unitarian Universalist connections when the, when the holiday was first created. Here in Southern California, which is where where it grew, wow. Dr. Malana Karenga was, he's the creator of Kwanzaa and he was the head of Black Studies at Cal State Long Beach where I did my undergrad. Wow. So like, Amazing. so all of these connections started to come together just now because mm. of everything we've been going through. Well, I had the benefit of experiencing one of your one week's uh, slate of music was devoted to Kwanzaa. And I Mm -hmm. was one of my early, very positive experiences of going, oh, you know, what a breath of fresh air to come to a a Unitarian church, right? Yeah, it's just like, well, I I just had a church in general, right? I was just raised Catholic. Like I wasn't going to hear Kwanzaa at the the Catholic mass. Anyway, it's just to say that I have a piece. I've gotten to listen to a piece of this journey of yours and this very important part of your, your life. And I where would you say you are in your journey of articulating what it is that you need to say? Yeah, it became clear that you know, um, 
for one thing, you know, I'm 42 <laughs> and I had, a, oh man, I did we're a, like right at the same age with each other. Yeah, okay, we're right, right at the same age. You can relate to forties. You know, I feel like personally, I love being in my forties. I feel like I've, you know, you can pay me to go back to my twenties or thirties. Like <laughs> I'm not doing that again. And I feel like at this Oh, I mean, stage, the guy you were I, dating in your twenties, I mean, what? Yeah. That guy was, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Wait a second. I know. Right? <laughs> oh my God. All right. Okay. Um, anyway, continue, continue. But I, but I feel like I no longer have to prove myself like I thought I did. I've already earned the degree. I'm blessed with a job that, that sustains me and I can really think about what I need to say. And it's looking like composition is sort of the direction that I keep getting pulled back into. It's a direction that I I think, you know, coming up all these years, I, I think there was a part of me that didn't think that, you know, compared to the quote, great composers that I was studying in school and singing in church, I didn't see myself among them. And this is what I mean by the whole identity thing. And, and, and how, why representation becomes a thing is because I started to realize that, oh, I'm a part of this fabric. I need to contribute to to the repertoire. I need to contribute to the canon. Mm. And what I have to contribute is worthy. You know, my musical language is important because I'm a part of the the landscape, you know, and and honestly, I didn't you don't have to have a degree or you don't have you don't have to do anything to earn a place. You you being a human being on the planet, you know, existing and having a love for this music and having something to say that that qualifies you enough. And I wish I had known that sooner. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had known myself as someone who with a voice that was important enough to say something compositionally before the pandemic made my voice important. You know what I mean? Do you feel like Forgive me if this is a an obvious question, but I have some sense that maybe you were both aware and unaware of your identity, of the color of mm-hmm. your skin when you were younger. The way you speak about it, you haven't spoken about your story as being one where you were constantly reminded of the color of your skin. And yet at the same time, what you're reflecting to me in this story is that you sort of um, might have accepted some... Mm-hmm place where you didn't feel like you had access? You said you didn't feel you had a place and then you realized well, I, you did. Yeah. Is, am, yeah well, I, am I wording that question improperly? Well, or? it was not that I didn't feel I had a place, but I didn't see myself. So in other words, it's like mm. everywhere I was, I was very accustomed, especially being as precocious as I was as a kid and being into the music that I was into. I was always into classical music and I always wanted to harmonize. These were, and I was into the academics of it. You know, I wanted, and and taking piano lessons and all of these things that you don't necessarily automatically associate with stereotypical black culture. So that sort of, I I always kind of understood that I was kind of (laughs) weird. You know, I was kind of different. And so I became comfortable understanding that wherever I went, basically, the life that was appeared to be laid out for me was a life that where there weren't going to be a, a lot of other people that looked like me. And so I'm, I was, I grew up and continue to, you know, even to this day flit around and, and most of my circles where, it, you know, I am one of very few or maybe even the only person that looks like me. And I, I think that that, that's the thing. It's like, it's not that I didn't notice. It's just that well, I knew what I wanted really badly. You know, I, I knew that I wanted it, wanted music. That was what was important to me. And I needed to experience a certain way. And even if the people who were doing what I was doing didn't look like me, it didn't matter because I knew this is what I needed to do. And I, and I count that as a ma- massive blessing to have that much, you know, connection to, to music, like to, to pull me along when, you know, there were, 
arguably many, many factors that could have held me back. You know, um, mm. I think that I was just really blessed to have such a strong early connection and devotion to this to this field. And I think that that's what made me overcome the fact that there wasn't representation in my field, which later on did start to affect me because it makes you wonder, well, am I really then am I black enough or am mm. I, am I, am I black enough for the black folks or am I too black for the non-black folks? You know, where, where do I fit? You know, you, you kind of start to get those things in your mind. And, and that's why I'm saying when the, when the pandemic hit, it's sort of like, no, I'm authentically black. I am black enough. I contribute to the diaspora in that way. And my voice and my art in my contribution is necessary in my field that is primarily dominated by white male Europeans, you know, like, like I'm a part of that now. And it's, it's bigger than me and it's bigger than them. It's, it's, we only realize the potential of this art form when we all can belong in it, in it. And, and I have to show up in order for that to happen. And now I'm not afraid to show up anymore. And I'm not worried about whether I'm the only one in the room or whether I'm one of several. And the beautiful thing is now in terms of what, what the coral field looks like now, I'm, I'm happy to say that you know, we're, there's still lots of bumps in the road and issues, but there are so many more people that look like me, so many more people of color in general and, and Black people specifically who are being recognized and, and put front and center um, in choral music. Um, there's so many scholars and pedagogues and champions and, and artists, you know, really just really splendid um, musicians who are leading our field, um, who are people of color. I, that that That's incredible. And maybe that's a silver lining in, over the last two years is that people have really paid attention and there are a lot more voices on the landscape now than there used to be. And I'm really happy that I get to be one of those voices as well. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Zaneda, we're almost at the end here. So I have one more question for you, which is, it's really dawned on me. I feel like I'm in a slightly different place. My child is younger than your uh, children. Mm-hmm. I really am feeling that like second half of my life thing. I'm really feeling that, <laughs> Yes. you know, I'm really feeling yeah. that like, okay, I've got, I have a son and, and I have my lovely wife and, and this is our life together. And, and I uh, have had the good fortune of having a successful acting career. I still have my acting career. I, have hopes and dreams for more projects, but what is it that I want in this second half of my life that might be different than what the Mm -hmm. first half was? And I wonder if you're articulating a new vision of what that is for you. It really seems like you're having this rebirth in a way. And so where, Mm -hmm. what is that thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. I really think that, uh, it seems like I keep coming back to composing. I'm a composer. I think I've always been a composer, but now I'm going to be a composer. Mm. Um, and I am a composer, doggone it. <laughs> yeah, great. And I'm right, you know, and I'm writing music. And for me, it's always been kind of like I've been rotating between singing and conducting and writing music, maybe kind of peripherally. And now I feel like the rotation, it's like now I'm composing and teaching and then kind of conducting and singing is sort of taking a back seat now, which makes sense. I mean, if you think in terms of singers like athletes, which I, I firmly believe that singers are athletes and athletes are artists, you know, and, mm-hmm. and if you think in those terms, you know, 
my yes, you could keep up an instrument. You can sing, you know, with good technique all the way into your later years and everything like that. But am I going to do I have the same agility and access and marketability that I did when I was younger? No, I'd, I'd have to kind of do something different because my voice has changed, you know, and mm-hmm. do I want to? I, I, you know, yeah, I love making money from royalties and things like that, you know, <laughs> from the, but really, though, is that really what feeds me? You know, I, I did it. I did that. And I'm grateful for that. And and I'm not the only I don't need to. Uh, there's also this issue of, you know, I need to I need to stay in it because I need to represent. You know, there there's a little bit of that. I need to stay in it because I need to represent. I'm not the only black woman in the studio anymore, which is beautiful. It kind of used to feel that way. Um, but now I, there there has been so much progress in terms of uh, representation and diversity. I, I don't necessarily feel like I have to be that anyway. Even if there wasn't as much progress in you know in terms of diversity in the room, I still don't feel like I have to be the one to provide that diversity. Like no, I'm done. I'm done with that. Now it's about what do I have to say as I enter the second half of my life compositionally, um, because I think that that's ultimately what's going to feed me. And I think that, you know, I have the potential to contribute something valuable to the world as a, even more so as a composer than I did maybe previously as a singer. Um, And so I think that's, that's where I'm headed. And um, eventually what, what if one day I got to be a composer full time? I would, I would love to, I think I would love to do that. You know, maybe I don't have to grind out (laughs) the teaching gig anymore, you know, which is, I love. You still sing at neighborhood on Sundays? No, I'm just kidding. Of course, come on. I want you to have it. I want you to have your life. Compose, compose, compose. We'll 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 pass it on to the next person. I love, I love my church job. I, I, I'm so grateful for all the work that I get to do. Um, I love my church job. I love my teaching job. But I'm what I one of the things that I miss that I would love to come back to is being an Episcopalian. That's something that I haven't gotten to do. And I really love the Episcopal Church. Um, I, I wrote a piece this past November. Um, I was commissioned by an Episcopal Church up in Seattle um, to write a piece for their Advent service. And they flew me up to hear it. And it was the first time I had been to an Episcopal Church service in a long time. I was absolutely in heaven. I, I was ready to move there. Like, I was like, I, I just want to live here. This is this is where I belong, you know. Mm. <laughs> I had to come back down to earth and be like, hey, you have a job, you have kids, you have, you, you can't just up and yeah. move to Seattle to go, go to church, you know, like, <laughs> but that, that's how powerful I feel the, the pull of, of, you know, that, that church experience and, and being able to go to church again with my husband, you know, that's the thing, like, you know, he's, he's not really into the Unitarian thing. He wants to go to church, church, and he wants to go with me and I can't go to the church that he wants. So as, as long as I've kind of got this job, I kind of, I can't really get back into the church thing yet. So I'd like to event one day I'd love to to wrap it up where I can my husband and I can just go to church together again and maybe sing and just bask in the ritual and the tradition that that we came to to know and love in our younger years. Zaneda, this was a really beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all this stuff. My pleasure. Thank you so, so much for having me. Hang on a second here and and, uh, let me let go of the show before I let go of you, okay? Okay. Thank you all for listening.
wonder if you even know this man's name. Do you know a name, Michael Dawson Connor? Would you know that name? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do you know Michael? So he, I I just recorded him uh, two episodes ago. So Michael has an amazing story. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully your experience with Michael is positive, but um, (laughs) he's, he's a sweet man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 